2, starting in verse 11, says this. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The hero of Greek myth, Achilles, was supposedly invulnerable. There was nothing you could do to stop him. He was unstoppable. He could not be killed. He couldn't be harmed in any part of his body, which had supposedly been dipped into the river Styx when he was a child. Unfortunately, though, when they dipped him, he was held by his heel and dipped all of his body in right up until the heel and then pulled him back out. So eventually, whenever he was finally struck on the heel, that was all it took, and Achilles was killed. Another ancient hero, Odysseus, was delayed in his journey home because his pride kept getting him into trouble. Superman, he has his kryptonite. It hurts him, it harms him. The material from his home planet is radioactive to him. Green Lantern, he has the color yellow. Martian Manhunter, he's afraid of fire. Spider-Man has this crippling guilt from the responsibility that's placed on him because of his great power. In virtually every hero we can think of, There's also always a glaring imperfection that we can't avoid whenever we are encountered by them. These flaws, they tend to help us relate to the heroes, but they also provide some tension, some suspense in the story whenever we read them. Any hero that is perfect can't fail, but any hero that isn't perfect can. He can lose. He proves by his imperfection that there's at least the possibility of a bigger fish out there that will one day beat him. And that's okay in a hero. That's fine in a hero. That makes for a good story in a hero. But it doesn't make for a very good savior. In today's text, we're introduced to some of Moses' flaws. He was introduced last week as the deliverer whom God has provided to bring his people out of slavery. But lest we think that he's actually the one who deserves the glory here, in today's verses, immediately after he's introduced as the deliverer, we're able to see some ways that Moses is not perfect. And in those ways, I think we'll also be reminded of the one who is perfect, who has none of these imperfections, who is the one true deliverer. So from today's text, we'll be able to see three imperfections of Moses the earthly deliverer in our story. Three imperfections of Moses. And the first imperfection that Moses, God's earthly deliverer, has that we can see in our text today is that Moses tends to respond in his own strength. He responds, he acts and does good things, but he does them out of his own power so often. Look back at verse 11. 
One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So last week Moses was born. This week Moses has grown up. We saw last week how he was saved from the attempted genocide by his mother, his sister, Pharaoh's daughter. How he was raised by his Hebrew mother and then handed over to Pharaoh's daughter. How he was welcomed into the royal household. But now, text says, he's grown up. Acts actually tells us that he was about 40 whenever these events happened in today's verses. So he's mature. He's a grown man. He's not a bright-eyed college student who one day opens his eyes to a wider world. He's lived half of a normal life. And most of his years, he's lived them as an honored member of Pharaoh's household. He's been pampered. He's been fed well. He likely never knew any kind of real physical hardship. But he also knows, because he grew up in his mother's household, that he actually is an Israelite, a Hebrew by birth. He knows he should have been killed for those reasons by the decree of Pharaoh. He knows that his people are in slavery. Surely he's seen some of this before. This isn't a foreign concept to him. This isn't something that he didn't know about. But now he's chosen to actually pay attention. He didn't go out to look on their burdens because he had never seen them before. He didn't go out to see what was going on because he wasn't aware of the slavery they were, they, they were in. But he went out to inspect it, to closely examine what was going on, to look right in the face of exactly how bad it was for his people who were slaves in a foreign land, his people who were waiting for God to one day lead them back to the land that he had promised them. He refused to turn a blind eye. He doesn't selfishly look at his own life of comfort. He doesn't just thank God that he doesn't have it as bad as all of his relatives do. He looks the brutal slavery of the Hebrews in the face, and he sees them in their affliction. He identifies with them in their pain. He takes pity on them. He has compassion on them, yes. But, but what he does is, beyond merely feeling sorry for them as they're being beaten by their taskmasters, he's not just saying, those people are in pain, What he says in the verses, he says, my people are in pain. He went out to his people, the Hebrews. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And that's noteworthy because, sure, by birth, Moses was a Hebrew. But you wouldn't know that by the clothes he was wearing. You'd never know that by the fat he has on his face. You'd never know that by the soft hands he has, free from all of those days of hard work. For all intents and purposes, Moses was more Egyptian than Hebrew. Were he not raised in his mother's household? Were he not designed by God for these purposes? Did he not have a special heart of compassion and care for these people? When he went out to inspect his people, then he would have been focused on the ones with the whips. You'd expect the verse to say that he saw an Egyptian, one of his people, beating a Hebrew. But Moses has a heart for his true people here. He has compassion on the oppressed, the ones who are in need of it. He chooses the lowly over the powerful. And that's not a cheap choice for him. Because this isn't a one-time impulsive move for him. This is his one act of defiance, which shows him fully renouncing his former identity. He renounces his adopted family. He renounces all of his honors, all of his titles, all of his comfort, his own peace. So that he might be able to provide peace for those who are in slavery. 
The book of Hebrews, it actually tells us a little more about what exactly Moses is doing here. In Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 27, it says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, you wouldn't necessarily jump to those motives if all you had in your text in front of you was, was the book of Exodus, these verses. You wouldn't see from verse 11 alone that this meant he's renounced his title. This meant that he has chosen a form of slavery himself instead of all the pleasures of Pharaoh's household. Hebrews is saying that he was acting in faith, that he was looking forward to the true deliverer, Jesus Christ, that he was willing to endure even exile in the hope that is found by focusing on what currently can't be seen. What Moses does is he sees people in need and he has compassion on them in their need, and then he acts. He does something. And if you're paying attention, there's a question you should be asking here. I thought these were three ways that Moses is an imperfect deliverer. I thought these were three ways that Moses messes up. Because to this point, he sounds pretty great. I mean, you could even make pretty clear and easy connections between Moses' actions and those of Christ, right? Christ comes to earth because he loves his people. He sees us languishing in sin and death. He sees us as slaves to unrighteousness. In his earthly ministry, he repeatedly had compassion on we who are like sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't just feel sorry from over there. He doesn't just say, oh, I feel bad for them. He comes. He identifies with us. He takes our burden on himself, becoming like we are, to the point of being found in human flesh like we are. I mean, to this point, Moses sounds, he feels a lot like Jesus here. But the problem is that Moses... Though he is used by God, though he is provided by God to deliver God's people from slavery, Moses is not perfect. Moses doesn't nail it. He isn't the one true deliverer that they need. And you can tell that here because he acts in his own power as he tries to deliver them. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Struck down is killed. He killed that man. He murdered that man. And there's two ways you can understand this verse. I think you have warrant for either one of them. You can read it how I historically have, how I think is probably the more correct reading here, that Moses is looking this way and that to see if he can get away with what he wants to do here. He looks this way and that to see, like, am I about to commit a murder in front of someone or am I about to commit a murder in secret? That he knows that this is a murder he's about to commit. He sees a man beating another. He decides to start this revolution. But being pinned with a murder charge before he's sure, before he knows whether everyone's going to follow him or not, that's not really something he's interested in. So he looks around this way and that, everywhere he can, sees if there are any witnesses. He finds none. He beats the man to death. He buries him. And then he goes about his business. Okay, I think that's there. I think that's valid. I think you can read the text that way. But I think you can also read that verse as Moses taking things into his own hands because he doesn't think anyone else will. He sees someone languishing in oppression, someone being beaten themselves, and looks around and says, there's no one else to do this. 
No one else sees what's going on. But I do, so I will act. He decides to move. He won't let the oppression go on any longer. He won't wait for God to intervene any longer. He thinks maybe God doesn't see this, but I do see it. Moses has two hands, and with these two hands, he's going to use them to crack some skulls. Either one of those readings, I think, are valid. I think either way, either way you decide to read that, though, it means that Moses wasn't exactly in the right here. I mean, his motives, they may have been ultimately good. I mean, God certainly used this evil to bring about his own purposes. But Moses trying to start his own little revolution, that's not how God intended to use him to bring his people out of slavery. That wasn't the full eventual plan of God to save his people. Stephen, when he's talking about this story in his speech in Acts 7, says this, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He, Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. I mean, Moses saw himself as the deliverer here. He wanted to save his people. But they didn't see things that same way. It wasn't yet time for them to follow him in that way toward those ends. Moses takes pity on the people. He has so many good and laudable qualities here that point us to the good and perfect deliverer. But because Moses isn't perfect, his methods, his motives, everything he does here is also not perfect. He responds in his own strength rather than trusting that God would call him, rather than trusting that God would use him to deliver his people in God's own time, in God's own way. And whenever you read through the book of Exodus, you'll see that over and over. He continues to act in that same way. That's how he acts here, and then he also folds under opposition. That's the second imperfection of Moses that we can see in this text today. He folds under opposition. Look back at verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. We saw in that quote from Acts 7, and we can read between the lines here, Moses was hoping that this one act would be the one spark to start this revolution. He was hoping to be hailed as a hero by his people, that now they've got a deliverer. Now he's the one who's going to be able to save them. He is the Hebrew-Egyptian who chose to be a Hebrew rather than an Egyptian. He was the one who would lead them out of slavery. I mean, at the very least, you've got to think that Moses hoped not to be punished for the murder of this man that he had already killed. He had to hope that word wouldn't immediately get back to Pharaoh, you know, like a day later, about the murder that he had committed. At least not until he knew that there was a revolution starting, that the Hebrews were all with him, that he could count on them for some kind of protection here. But what happens? He goes out the next day to inspect the same kind of things he was inspecting the day before. He sees some Hebrew on Hebrew crime, and he decides to intervene again. Now he's gotten a taste of some vigilante justice. He wants to start righting wrongs every time he sees them. He steps in, the one great savior, the one great deliverer. He stops the fight. 
He arbitrates. He hears their stories and says, you're in the wrong, and you need to answer for this to me now. He thinks that he has the authority to accuse the one in the wrong. He asks for an explanation for why he's doing what he's doing here. You see, Moses wants to be the judge. He wants to be the leader. He wants to be the one great voice that they're all going to listen to. He wants to tell them what to do and how to live, to be the one with the final say. In Exodus 2, you don't find a lack of desire out of Moses to be able to be the deliverer for his people. Not yet, at least. But then rather than bowing to the great deliverer, rather than allowing Moses' word to be law, what does the Israelite answer back? He says, hey, uh, who put you in charge, man? What are you going to do, beat me to death, bury me in the sand? Do you have like a daily quota for this or something? You did it yesterday, it's a new day, you got to find somebody else. You're just digging holes in preparation for whoever you're going to beat to death in the next day. Evidently, word had already gotten around what Moses did. The people, the Hebrews, they were less than impressed. They may have even been angry with Moses because they knew, hey, we start killing taskmasters, you know who's not going to like that? The taskmasters. The people with whips don't like it when you kill the other ones with whips. They had no hope or faith in this Moses guy to actually get them out of slavery. They said, hey, if you start pushing all of our bosses off of ledges, everyone else isn't going to like that. And the ones who are already being beat are the ones who are going to continue being beat, even worse because of the things that you're doing. We see here the, the first instance of an attitude that you're going to see from the Israelites throughout the book of Exodus, that they continually reject any opportunity to get where they need to be. Every time something good is supposed to happen to them, every time God has a plan to bring them out of something terrible and to lead them into something better, they have a preference for the status quo that is already bad. They get out of slavery and they don't immediately find food and they say, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. Moses is attempting to deliver them. And here they prefer the status quo of slavery. He is there to deliver them. And they're more worried about, hey, who put you in charge? Who elected who here? And isn't that just like us? I mean, I remember, I remember growing up, I was the middle child, okay? So I was rarely put in charge. Somehow the authority like skips a child in the household. The, the firstborn is in charge when the parents leave. They leave the house. You think the middle one's going to be in charge. And then all of a sudden, nobody has to be in charge anymore. There's no authority waiting for the middle child. I rarely tried to assert my will. I rarely tried to speak up or affect change because of those reasons. My goal in sibling relations and how I related to both of my sisters, the older and the younger, was do no harm and therefore be not harmed. If you don't mess with me, I won't mess with you. We'll all get along totally fine. But on the rare occasion that I would speak up, on the, the few instances that I would say, hey, I don't think we're supposed to be doing that right now. Hey, you should stop what you're doing right now. Hey, I don't think mom said this specifically, but I don't think when she left, she thought that you should go into her makeup, put on a Joker-style grin on your face, and then throw the lipstick down the toilet. That's a bad plan. Don't do that. Whenever I would stick my neck out and do that, you know what I was immediately met with every time? You're not the boss of me. They didn't put you in charge. I don't have to listen to you. I was giving good counsel, right? I said immediately what needed to happen. 
the good thing that should happen for her good, more so than mine. It's not my lipstick that's being dumped down the toilet. But it didn't matter because it was coming from me. It didn't matter what was being said or how it was being said. The good counsel was rejected. The good wisdom was given, and it was not heard. So often, that's how we react when we hear good things from an authority we don't want to listen to. Because we would so often prefer the freedom of driving off a cliff than listening to the tyranny of a road sign telling us not to. We're just like the Israelites here. They rejected Moses. And Moses did what I always did growing up. He folded like a cheap suit. He had this grand revolution plan. He was going to be the one great hope for his people. He was all in to the point of beating a man to death. And then one day later, one malcontent makes one comment and Moses just packs it all in. Moses bails. He says, I guess everybody knows. Nobody cares. I tried. Sorry, guys. Good luck with that whole slavery thing. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm out. He accepts their rejection. Says, if they don't want me, I don't want them. Now, now he had good reason to run. He had good reason to fear. He actually was rejected here. Just as killing one guy was a revolutionary act, telling Moses that he shouldn't be killing those guys is also an anti-revolutionary act. They weren't going to follow him. And again, you can see a connection here between Moses and Jesus to a point. He speaks. He steps in to arbitrate between the people to show them a better way. He leads. He shows them what they should be doing. He's even met with some of the same rejection as Jesus here. A stiff-necked people more interested in debating who the boss should be than what is being said. Telling the one that God gave as a boss that you didn't vote for him, so you don't have to listen to him. Moses points us to Christ here in these ways. But the people's rejection of Moses shows him to be imperfect, not because he was rejected, but because he allowed that rejection to stop him in his work. I mean, a little opposition, and suddenly freedom isn't worth it anymore to Moses. What if Christ had been imperfect in this way? One question from one Pharisee, and he just bails. He goes back to heaven. He ascends and hailfire and brimstone descends. To be God's true and perfect deliverer, it requires ignoring rejection, and it requires saving the people anyway. Now, Moses, he eventually gets there, but it takes 40 years of shepherding in Midian to get him there again, to get him ready to come back and do this again, to give it another try. Moses is imperfect because he accepts the people's rejection, and he folds when he meets opposition on the way to his eventual goal. But finally, Moses is also imperfect because he settles for contentment. That's the the third and final imperfection that we'll see in God's earthly deliverer in today's passage. Moses settles for contentment. Look back at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, He said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? 
Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Again, Moses, he has so many great qualities. He does so many of the right things. He flees to Midian. He sets up shop by a well, which is, you know, a smart thing to do. And then when these girls come out to draw water, whenever they get harassed by the local shepherds, Moses again steps in. He drives them away. He saves these damsels in distress. He does their job for them. He doesn't just throw a punch and then leave, doesn't just bail. He sticks around for the cleanup, sticks around for the hard part, the watering of the whole flock, the less glorious part here. He does a job that was evidently given to a bunch of young girls, but that's not beneath Moses to do. He still cares about justice. He still acts on behalf of the oppressed. He saved the Hebrew from his taskmaster, and here he saves these daughters from the shepherds. Moses must not like bullies. He's willing to put his own well-being on the line for someone else who needs it. In Egypt, he was a member of the royal household. I mean, depending on the circumstances, getting away with murder probably wasn't too far-fetched. I'm going to guess that happened at least once for someone in Pharaoh's household. But in Midian, he's a nobody. He's some guy out by a well. The girls don't even know who he is. They say, who saved you? I don't know, some Egyptian. He's the one who did it. I mean, this was dangerous for Moses. But he cared so much about justice. He cared so much about freeing the oppressed that he was willing to do what was even dangerous for him. And he was evidently willing to do what was dangerous, to pursue that justice, even without any kind of personal gain coming back on him. I mean, when they came to their father, Ruel, the priest of Midian, a man that we'll know later by the name Jethro in Exodus, someone who was religious and upright, someone who was likely even following the same God of the Hebrews in some rudimentary way, enough so that he's called a priest, the priest of Midian. His name, Ruel, means friend of God. When they got home to him, Moses wasn't even with them. He saved them, he watered the flock, and then he just let them leave. He was willing to do the deed without getting the reward that comes with it. He just sent them off the way they came. He did such a good job, evidently, of driving out the shepherds. He did such a good job of watering the flock that he did what seven daughters were sent to do fast enough that they got home so fast that their father said, why are you home so fast today? Did you do that thing that I told you to do when you left with all the animals, all seven of you? Did you get the job done? Maybe they were so constantly harassed by the shepherds that it always slowed them down. And without that one impediment, the job was done so much faster. Maybe Moses was just so good, so focused in his work, that he's able to do it faster than seven young girls were able to do as they were distracted, as they weren't focused on the task at hand. And Ruel, the the true father of daughters, says, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. Uh, I need a little more information here. How'd you get home so fast? What happened here? This usually takes you all day, and you guys are back home way earlier than I thought you would be. I I need an explanation here. They said, I don't know, some Egyptian guy saved us from the shepherds. That that same guy, he watered all the flocks. See, we're done. Isn't that great, Dad? We're home. 
And he has to call them back. He has to get more info. He, he has to tell them, hey, you should go find that guy. We owe him something. There's some hospitality that we should be giving him as a thank you here. But that doesn't come from Moses. There was no angle. There was no personal gain at the end of that good deed for him. He did it just because he knew it was the right thing to do. But then when he receives the temporary reward, when he's welcomed into the household, Moses settles for that reward, for that comfort. Verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses, his daughter, Zipporah. He's welcomed into their home. He sees a path here, a future here for a life in exile, a life out in the wilderness of Midian, a life even among this nomadic people that aren't quite his people, but they're close enough. And he takes that path. He settles down among them. He finds a nice girl. He has a great story for how they met. And Moses is content to dwell there among them. He's far from his people. He's no longer faced with the daily reminder of their affliction and their pain. He doesn't hear their cries. He doesn't hear the cracks of the whips out here. He doesn't have to fear that his son eventually will be thrown into the Nile when he's born. Moses has been rejected. He's in exile. But he says, this isn't so bad. I I can handle this. This is okay. So they didn't want me to lead them anyway. So they can have their slavery. No one can say I didn't try. He settles for contentment. He settles for comfort. He settles for exile outside the land that was promised to him and his people. But even in that settling, he still knows that there's something missing here. When his son is born, he names him Gershom and says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. That, that name literally means something along the lines of banishment, expulsion. means a stranger there. And it's not really clear whether he means that he is now a stranger in the land of Midian or whether he was a stranger there in the land of Egypt. It could be both. Because Moses knows neither one of these places are where we as a people are supposed to be. That's not clear. But what is clear is that Moses knows that he and his family are not home. They're not where they're supposed to be. He knows he's settling for a life outside of what is promised. And his awareness of that reality should then cause us to think that he knows, he hopes that this won't always be the case. I mean, he may be settling for comfort now, but he knows that comfort isn't as comfortable as it should be. He knows that comfort that he's experiencing now, it has an end date. Moses, our earthly hero in the story of Exodus, he may be a hero, he may be the earthly hero, but he's not perfect. We've seen that in this text, and I think that's actually part of why these stories are given here. I mean, Moses, he's the one who wrote all this down. He could have left out that part about the failed revolution. He could have forgotten to write down, hey, I murdered a guy back when I was 40. But it's here to show us that Moses is flawed. That he is a man who's used greatly by God, but he's not a perfect man who's used greatly by God. And if we're not careful, we can just hear that as a fact. We can file it away in our brains beside the names of the planets. and say, Moses was flawed, okay, got it, check. I know that now. 
It's not here for us to do that. The point here isn't simply to see that Moses is flawed. It's to see that Moses being flawed has something to teach us. So here are three things quickly that Moses being flawed should teach us. One, if Moses has these flaws and is still used by God, you should know that you can be used by God too. Moses was a murderer. Moses was a failed revolutionary. Moses had an anger problem. We'll see that throughout the story of Exodus. Moses didn't trust God enough. We'll see that throughout the story of Exodus. He tries to do some things in his own power rather than trusting God in his power. He keeps coming up against opposition, and his instinct every time is to fold. Maybe they can do better. He's not perfect. He's far from it. And yet, God uses him to lead an entire nation out of slavery. He uses him to lead them in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses instructs them how they should live as a people after he's gone. How they should be God's people after Moses isn't there anymore to lead them. Moses, though flawed, was used by God. So you, though flawed, can be used by God as well. There's room for you here in the people of God. Even as imperfect as you are. Because the point of Exodus isn't to tell us that Moses was so perfect. It's not that Moses is a great deliverer. It's that God is a great deliverer. So just as the imperfect Moses can be used to accomplish God's purposes, God can use the imperfect you in the same way today. The second thing we should learn from Moses' imperfection is that if Moses has these flaws and he's still used by God to lead his people, then you shouldn't be surprised when you see the flaws in your own leaders today. I say that, I point that out particularly because I am one of your leaders. In this church, as currently the sole pastor, I am the primary leader in this church. Okay, I think God calls men into his service. I think he places them into his service. I think he tells them where they should go. I think he equips them to serve where he has placed them. And for whatever reason, in this time, in this place... You guys are stuck with me. I'm all you've got. But I promise I'm flawed. I promise I'm imperfect. I mean, it's funny. As I go through here and see all of these flaws of Moses, I can point to instances where I have failed in each of these ways that Moses did in today's text. Maybe not the murder part, but like the anger part. All of these things, I see myself in them. I try to do things in my own power. I try to do things my own way. I have too little backbone sometimes. You give me the choices. I I tend to choose a quiet life in solitude rather than a hard public life of leadership. So don't be surprised when you see these flaws and maybe worse in your leaders, me included. Whoever else might come behind me, me and the next guy. But what was true for you is also true for me, for whoever else your leaders are or may be. The point of this story isn't about my non-existent perfection. It's about Christ's true perfection. And I think if you and I will both remember that, 
that you are imperfect but can be used by God, and I am imperfect but can be used by God, and neither one of us are here to convince the other one that they are perfect. We're here to remember the one who actually is perfect. If we will remember that when we talk to each other, when we deal with each other, when we, I don't know, maybe disagree with each other, I think we're both going to have a much better time here as the people of God, doing what he would have us do today. I think we're going to enjoy ourselves more, both the leader and those being led. But the third thing that we should learn from Moses' imperfection, maybe the most important thing that we should learn from Moses being flawed, is that if Moses has these flaws, then he is not the savior of his people. He is not the one who is going to save them out of their slavery. God is. Ultimately, Christ is. If you have these flaws, you are not the savior of yourself or of anyone else. If I have these flaws, I am not the savior of me or you or this church. If Moses has these flaws, though he is the earthly hero, though he is the earthly deliverer, he is not the true hero. He's not the true deliverer. He's not the real one. Exodus is a story about the hero saving his people out of slavery and into his presence. But we'll see as we go through it that that hero isn't Moses. It's God. And this very real drama that actually happened, that takes place in this story, is there not just so we'll look back at what God did for those people in that time and that place, but so that we will understand exactly what God saves us from and to in Christ. We should see in the Exodus our own Exodus. We should see that we are led out of sin and death by the perfect one, by Jesus Christ the righteous, who has none of these flaws, who is the one true deliverer. Moses, he isn't the Savior, but God has provided one who is. And by believing in his name, we can be saved from our slavery to sin and death and into God's perfect and holy presence. God has provided a perfect deliverer, and we can be saved by him even today. Thank God. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your people, to, to hear your word with your people, to sing it, to, to pray it, to preach it, and then to go out and to live it. Thank you for these reminders in your text that though you do provide leaders, they're imperfect. That though we do have earthly heroes, they're not perfect. But all of those imperfections, all of those problems, they're not there just so we can see them, point to them, try to move past them. They're there so that we can be reminded of the one who is perfect, of the one who does deliver us, of the one who will lead us out of slavery. Help us to be reminded of you and your perfection more and more with each passing day. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.